This is Andercast, inspiring business stories from the UCLA community without the tuition costs. Welcome to Andercast. I'm your host, Parth Shah. Today, we're honored to have our very own Professor Terry Kramer. Some of you may know him as a professor who teaches arguably some of the best tech classes at Anderson. Others may know him as a professor who travels from San Francisco to LA every week just to teach. But did you know Professor Kramer was appointed by President Obama to serve as the ambassador for head of U.S. delegations on international telecommunications in 2012? Did you also know that he was the president of Vodafone's America? I bet you didn't know that he had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to join Taco Bell Corporation. Welcome, Professor Kramer. Great. Thank you, Parth. Appreciate you bringing back good memories. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. Before we get started, I want to hear more about your professional career. You were at Vodafone for 18 years. You held all types of roles including the Group Strategy Officer, Group HR Officer, Chief of Staff, uh, Corporate Development, Chairman of Vodafone Ventures, just to name a few. What was your decision process like behind all these roles? Why did you make um, those choices? Yeah, it's a great question. And first of all, you know, just to say I was very fortunate to be there at the time I was. So obviously this is a big mobile operator. I joined in the late 80s, just when the cellular world was taking off. And it was a company that very much believed in moving people around the organization. You know, the essence of general management is you need to see a variety of areas before you uh, advance. So a lot of the different roles was the good fortune of the company, the leadership style, the focus senior leaders made on taking chances on people. And it's an important leadership lesson that all of us as leaders have to ultimately take a chance on somebody that we want to promote and give an opportunity to. So the first thing is, it was a great company, great time, et cetera. Now, what I tried to do is my, on my side of the bargain is to make sure that I was flexible in all the moves. We moved eight times in 18 years. We lived abroad for about a third of the years that we were there. I also tried to make sure that I was adding value in each of the roles. And a, a big piece and a concept that I learned was this idea about contextual leadership. Many of us as human beings kind of say, well, I am who I am and I'm going to go share all my great traits in whatever role that I've got. But really good leaders look at the environment they're going into and say, what is the playbook needed there? What is the environment there? How is it different than my previous environment? And that can be on an international or a global basis, what's needed in one country versus another. It can be if you go into a startup versus an established business. But I tried to think a lot about what was the environment I was going into in each of the different roles. And at a macro level, what I tried to do is I noticed there were kind of two types of people that were at Vodafone. There are people that may traditionally have come out of a business school, were very bright, good strategic thinkers, polished, et cetera. And then there were people that came up through the line organization. They came up through sales, operations, uh, et cetera. And what I found is the people that made it to the top had a combination of skills from both sides. So uh, they had to be bright and be able to kind of have a point of view about where innovation is going to happen, how do you win in, in an environment, et cetera. But they also have to be able to execute and have a pragmatism about them. And the classic kind of criticism of the MBAs like I was coming in there is smart and can think laterally and all that. But the things that you say and do are theoretical. And you get into the line organization, they say, oh, you have this great idea about a product. Nobody's going to buy it. You have this great idea about what motivates people. You don't get it, et cetera. And I didn't want to fall into that trap. 
Conversely, in the line organization, you can get people that are pragmatists. They understand how the world works today, what motivates customers, employees, etc. But if you're in a changing environment where business models are changing, and we certainly in a tech world today, you know, the people that win are changing, you got to be able to look out a bit. Long term, you got to look laterally, etc., and form a point of view. And some of them couldn't do that. What I tried to do is operate the intersection of the two. So I tried to, to have you know, lateral thinking and be strategic, et cetera, but I tried to pay attention to people that came up through the line organization so I had a practical style. That combo I found was what it took to, to move up. It sounds like part of that was because you were at Vodafone for a long time mm -hmm. and you were able to build those relationships with the folks on the line. Mm -hmm. The trend that we're seeing with my generation and the generations coming up is you're there at a company for two or three years, and you move on, it could be because the opportunities aren't there, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for those folks where you're changing careers, you're changing companies so frequently? Yeah, so the first thing is obviously test the assumption about having to leave every two or three years. So you want to, to the spirit of contextual leadership, you want to say, what does it take to make it in this company and can I see myself doing that? If you're in a telecom company, it's still not uncommon to stay there quite a few years. So if you're there, you should be saying, why am I thinking I have to leave in two years? If you're getting signals, you're not valued. If people of comparable skills are getting promoted ahead of you, then you got a problem. But if not, you know, you should give some thought. Now, if other environments, they don't value staying there long term, then you want to make sure through a portfolio of companies, you're developing the skills you need to get to wherever you want to. And one of the things I notice is, you know, when people ask me for career advice, I often start with, where do you want to be long term? And I, I would say half the people or more are not clear on it. And yes, you got to be a bit flexible, but you need to have some sort of end goal in mind. It's like, you know, working out or something. If you have no goal at all, you're going to do incremental stuff. You're not going to kind of push yourself and say, am I where I need to be? So you want to first say, where do I want to be? And then do your own plus delta, your gap analysis on what do you need for that end role and where are you today? So as an example, when I was at Vodafone, Arun Serene was the CEO of the company. I probably learned more from him than any other leader. And I, I had the good fortune of working for him for about 12 of the 15 years. And I looked at how he operated as CEO. And I honestly looked at myself and I said, where's the gap here? And I'm on my way up and all that, but what are the things I need to go do? He was a master of the 80-20 rule. He was a master of what I cover in my class today, the so what's. He could take all this disparate data on an M&A opportunity, on a new product, on a new geography we wanted to get into, and said, this is the essence of the opportunity and what we have to do or not. And I said, how good am I at that? And I said, I'm average at that, and I'm going to get better at that. I saw somebody that could operate differently in different geographies. He was from India originally, but he had gone to school in the U.S. He had operated in Europe a lot. And so I tried to say, where do I need to be in all of that? So my advice is if people do want to move, make sure you still have a game plan. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a J on Myers-Briggs. I'm highly planned. I personally believe too many people are reactive and opportunistic about their careers. I'm not saying don't look at stuff as they come up. You should. But don't veer off your path massively. Because I know as I interview people on boards and other things that I do, I'm looking for the logic of what they did. 
What did you learn in each of these roles? What were you trying to achieve? Why did you leave one role to get to another? And if I get a good compelling story, I say, this person's pretty good. If everything seems like a random act, I worry that that's not necessarily leadership. So make sure you have the game plan along the way and get those skills that, that you need and don't exit prematurely. You know, sometimes we're all ambitious, but you got to look back and I say 50, 60, 70% of the time I see people move, they're not moving for the right reason and it doesn't yield the right action. They were getting impatient and we're all impatient people, but you got to be thoughtful when you make a move. How do you evaluate those types of opportunities when they come up? I think one of the challenges that we have is, is this the right opportunity to go down or is this, do I stay the course at where I am right now? Yep. So I think a lot of it starts with what I uh, call, what does success look like? I'm a, and that's another thing I'm really big on is what does success look like for your career? What does success look like for whatever you're managing? And in turn, whoever you're working for, you should be able to ask them, what does success look like for me in this role? And again, it's another one I'd say 70, 80% of the time, people are not clear. And you as a leader are not good if you can't answer that question clearly. You as an aspiring leader aren't good if you're not managing your actions in your career well. You as a supervisor, if you can't share that with your employee, you're setting yourself up for an unhappy employee because they're thinking one thing about what they're trying to do, you're thinking another. So to answer your question, what I would ask, you know, when I worked in a new environment, tell me what success looks like. And, you know, in, in terms of how I deliver and what I deliver, tell me what it takes to move along here. And I'm not saying be hard edged and, you know, over the top on it, but just say, hey, listen, Parth, you've had a great career here. What is your advice to me about what it takes to do well? Where should somebody be a year from now and three years from now? Have a bit of kind of um, yardsticks and milestones along the way. And if you do that, I think you, you, you're much more likely to get a lot out of that job and know when it's time to leave. If you've achieved everything and you're not getting promoted, you're not getting new assignments. Plateauing. Yeah, then, you know, there's a signal there. Either the organization doesn't have the room, they don't value you as much and you know to go. But again, don't do a self-inflicted wound where you just don't have a, a view, you get impatient, you jump, and then you find, you know, I look back and I don't know if it was such a good move. One of the things you've mentioned in your class is the value of an MBA is what you make it two or three years after you graduate. Yep. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. So I see, it's interesting. I see people that are considering going to business school and they can work for some great marquee companies. And I won't mention any of the names for risk of embarrassing them. And some of the companies and some of the individuals will make a case you don't need to get an MBA. We will teach you everything we need to teach you, where you're at. You're not going to have to have this out outflow of money and, and funds to fund your MBA. You're not going to have a loss of income. All these great kind of MBA arguments they make. The key thing is, is they're optimizing when they answer you it for years zero to five out of your MBA. So absolutely, yes, it's a negative NPV if you just look at it on a five-year basis. But to me, what you're optimizing for is the long-term roles you're trying to get. Those most senior roles you're going to get, whether you're money-oriented and you're going to look at getting to an officer level of a big company or getting a great exit on, a, on an entrepreneurial venture, the difference between being a CEO and the next level down is massive. It's 
two, three, four, five times the outcome there. The number of people and the complexity of issues you'll deal with are two, five, ten times greater as you get to the top level. And to me, what you should be getting out of an MBA is that ability to understand complex problems, complex situations, and how do leaders operate in those most difficult environments. And so to me, have the long-term mindset and don't get cute about your MBA. And that also says, don't get cute about what you're doing once you're here. Be serious about your MBA. Think about what success looks like, what you're trying to get out of it, and make sure you're getting all those things out of it. Because for 95% of the people, it's the last time you're going to go to school formally. Make, make the most of it. It's very sad. Mike and I are graduating in three months and that's all we have. <laughs> Hopefully it's not too late. <laughs> One of the things I took away from your class is the framework on, on how you evaluate opportunities, how you evaluate new trends, new ventures that you want to enter. Yeah. Can you tell us more about the framework that you use and what you teach? Yeah. Uh, my class, as you know, is heavily case-based because I think there's nothing better to test whether somebody really understands a concept than having them put it into practice with a real-life case. I went to HBS, and HBS was 700 cases in two years. So it's kind of like in the DNA, you had to operate this way. I found um, that case-based analysis is also something you're going to use through your entire business career. And your ability to understand a problem and make a compelling recommendation is absolutely key. So what does it entail? To me, there's three elements of assessing any business problem, any case, et cetera. And I'm, I'm swagging and boiling it all down to one thing. But in general, I find these things work. Um, number one is understanding what the problem is that's being solved. Number two, understanding the context. And then number three, making a compelling recommendation. So the first one is, is are you clear about what problem you're trying to solve? So I always tell students, when I was early in my career, I was running the Southwest market for what is today Verizon Wireless in Arizona and New Mexico. And my boss was based in London. Her name was Jan Peters. And we used to do these operations reviews, you know, every month. And I remember going over kind of key issues, things we were trying to work on. And she would pound her pen on the table. I could hear it remotely on the conference call. And she'd say, what is the problem we're trying to solve here? What is the problem we're trying? And I used to get so annoyed listening. I said, what do you mean, what is the problem? We're in an operations review and I'm describing it. She made a very critical point. In essence, what she's saying is you think you understand what the problem is, but I think you're actually misaligned on it. The number of times leaders, and you see this in cases, there's subterfuge going on. Leaders are confronted with lots of problems concurrently, but not all problems are created equal. Often there's one really big issue that gets disproportionate value in terms of getting an outcome. It can be a market share issue. It could be a revenue growth issue. It could be a cost issue. It could be a customer satisfaction issue. But your ability to understand what is the problem that needs to get solved and anchor that around it. And this is where leaders go wrong. If they ask their organization to go solve a generic issue and they're not clear about what the problem is and what success looks like, you're creating a centrifugal force of the people that work for you. They're going in 18 different directions. They're not achieving what needs to get done. And by the way, they're getting demoralized because they think they're doing all these good things and they're not achieving what the supervisor thought they should be. So my message in all this is be really clear about what the problem is you're trying to solve. That's the anchor point of everything. Then the next thing is, is understand the context. So many people launch into, you need to do this. And they, they'll lead a management meeting this way. We need to do this and let's have a discussion. It's like, where the hell did this answer come from? 
you have it in your mind you need to do this, but I don't yet, I'm not with you. And this is where leadership teams get scattered and they don't execute well, is because they have a different view of the world around them. And a job of a leader is to understand how is the world around them changing and try and get everybody on that same page. So how are consumer preferences changing? In a tech-based world, if you ask that question in Europe versus China, you're going to get very different answers. In Europe, you're going to say, well, people want their data protected and they're willing to adopt slower and be careful on, you know, tech-related, you know, changes in a society. In China, it's like full steam ahead. You better move along on that. If you don't have a collective view about consumers and their preferences, et cetera, you got a problem. If Number two, if you don't have a view about technology, is technology actually available and ready? If you looked at uh, mobile apps seven, eight, nine years ago, you'd have to say, listen, they all look great, but the smartphone penetration is still low. It's not where it needs to be to get broad adoption. If you said conversely, today, you have 80, 90% smartphone adoption. You have to have a view about where technology is, how much data is available, do people have access to that data, can the data be analyzed well, et cetera, et cetera. You need to have a view on competition. Who are the competitors that are out there? Because if you want to go do something and you're going to hit immediately headwinds from a big competitor, you got a problem. The other issue is, and I always you know, cover this in my class, but we often tend to have a static view on competition. Competition is often dynamic. So a competitor today, um, somebody may not be in there, they may be there tomorrow. The tech companies, Google, Facebook, to a certain degree IBM, to a certain degree Cisco, they may move into some of these spaces and you say you want to get into them. So Ford Motor that wants to get into autonomous vehicles and, and ride sharing, they better be looking out for Waymo. Google's autonomous vehicle uh, venture. So my message on context is understand where the context is and have a point of view about what the implications are. And I always say, what is the so what on all of these, right? So the so what is you can't just list a bunch of data. This is another defining piece about, to me, senior leaders versus people that are early in their careers or get locked in their careers at a lower level. They get lost in data. They list all these data points. It's like, why does this matter? Arun Sarin was so good. When he'd have people come in and present, and I would be his chief of staff, and he would quietly ask, he said, what's the so what here? What's the so what? They'd be going through a PowerPoint deck. It was his polite way of saying, you need to get your thoughts together here. I don't want to look at a bunch of data on a piece of paper. I want you to tell me what's going on that matters in relation to the decision we're trying to take. So you want to say, what is the so what in all these areas? And then ultimately, what is your recommendation? And by the time you get to that recommendation, it should be self-evident. A plus B equals C, the problem, plus the effective analysis of context will lead you to a natural recommendation. People will be with you. But when people make recommendations that they haven't assessed the context, they don't know the environment well, and it falls flat it's often because the problem isn't clear, the context they haven't analyzed, and out of the blue, they just said, we need to go do this. And the problem when you do that in a, in a company environment, whether it's a small venture or a large one, is you've got competition for resources, and people can say, I'm not with you. And then you got a problem. And what will happen, it's insidious over time, your credibility will be hurt over time. Because then they'll say, Parth, you made that recommendation, and I don't know how your head's wired. I don't, I don't know if you're not analyzing things or et cetera. Conversely, you get your head together and you talked about moving up at Vodafone. If you can make a case, you're much more likely to move along in your career.
what leaders and companies currently embody that in your mind, especially in tech? Where are you making your bets? Yeah, so I uh, have a lot of respect for Google at a macro level. I think they've got a very, very talented group of people working for them that are very, very data-oriented in an environment where the world is in almost every sector becoming data-oriented. And they're, they're very wise not to let gut and intuition take over decision-making. The other thing is they're very shrewd business people. They understand where the money is made. So their understanding of search and search economics and do a bunch of free offerings in exchange for getting ad dollars in was very, very shrewd. Their strategic moves to kind of go into an area, create noise in an area that stimulates an ecosystem that benefits them, and then sometimes exiting it. So Google Fiber is a great example of that. They get all the carriers to you know, launch higher speed networks. It gets more people on the internet accessing, benefits Google. Google gets everybody worried about it. They have five, 10 markets and then they exit it. It's very, very shrewd. So companies like that, I have a lot of respect for. Um, Amazon would be another one, data-oriented, customer-oriented, using that information to their benefit to create better customer offerings and create more scale. Don't you think that, uh, take Google and Amazon, for example, mm -hmm. Google, their whole motto today is don't be evil. Right. But now you're seeing that they're becoming more corporate, the decisions that they're making in China, et cetera. And same with Amazon. Amazon, people are starting to notice that they collect data and they can corner the market. Mm -hmm. So do you feel like that change is going to lose a lot of their customers? It could, but to me, the devil's in the details. So what you've highlighted, you hear that uh, view, especially in Europe. And the, the view is basically big is bad. It's a de facto large scale. And it's probably people that are English lit majors that um, Shakespeare had, you know, absolute power corrupts and power corrupts absolutely. So if you fully subscribe to that, then you got to watch out. What I would submit is wait to see if the customer's harmed. And take Amazon as an example. I have to say selection is better, prices are lower, service is better, and who are you defending exactly here? So I just think we, we've got to be factual about this stuff. Yes, the companies are getting bigger, but by definition, the, the space that they're in requires scale. For you to do search well, you've got to have lots and lots of data points to create relevance in the search outcomes. Now, if they're using that to push competitors out of a business, actually explicitly, a la Microsoft. They were notorious for that. Without necessarily any benefit in product development and all that, that's bad news. And they should be broken up and they should be you know, held to account. Absolutely. I don't think we're yet at that. We need to watch it. We need to be wary of it, et cetera. But I think actually in this data world, we're going to have to get more comfortable that scale is needed. And let me pick one last example to show you the magnitude of just having a de facto view that big is bad. In healthcare, the promise of medical diagnostic tools, look at IBM Watson. If you look at um, UCLA's former CEO of UCLA Health in the medical center, David Feinberg, is running Google Health now. The prospect of a search engine that will yield better diagnostic outcomes on cardiovascular disease, on cancers, et cetera, it requires massive ingesting of data to create the outcomes. I think we need to go for the ride a bit here to see what that outcome is before we immediately assume big is bad. I think the other part of what you were saying is as long as the customer is getting value out of it, some of these issues are not as relevant right now. Yep. 
So what are your thoughts on Facebook? Because what you're seeing right now is that value that the customer is getting is slowly decreasing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm more mixed on Facebook, um, good and bad. So I didn't list them in the two companies I said, you know, I admired because on their privacy policy, they had the most aggressive privacy policy or, you know, accessing data. And it, it seems like without knowing exactly what led to what, that there were lapses in the execution of their agreements with partners on the use of data. And shame on them for that. That's unacceptable, and that will that'll breach trust. Now, Facebook has also connected the world. They've got about two billion users, and they have done it on a free model. And remember, you need to kind of say, where does a chess game play out here? If you say no access to data, then the question is, are you willing to pay for Facebook? And I always ask students in my class, tell me how many of you would pay twenty bucks a month for that? Nobody's hand goes up. 10 bucks a month, almost nobody's hand goes up. Five bucks a month, you maybe get a few takers. And so, again, I think we got to kind of say, you got to look at the total value here, the harm against the benefit. And I think a lot of people are saying they're still getting a lot of benefit out of it. As a matter of fact, their latest results suggest that advertisers appreciate the targeted capabilities of what they've got. Is the new game in town to corner the market with your consumers and then monetize? Um, so corner the market has a, has a negative connotation to it, right? Because it assumes a monopolistic behavior. What you want to start with is where do you create relevance for customers? Where do you create a better opportunity? Then backing into it, and this is, by the way, what leaders are going to have to do, is that is what you're trying to solve for. How do you win that game? If that game is data-oriented, if it's scale-oriented, then you need to get scale. I don't call that per se cornering the market because that implies you're pushing people out of the market, but it's saying you better get a lot of users and get insights that are highly predictive and accurate in nature. Um, let me give you, again, another stark example, autonomous vehicles. If you said, listen, I want the whole world to be able to deliver an autonomous uh, vehicle. I want to have 50 operators in there. I don't know if I want to get in one of those vehicles of somebody that has much lesser data. You're much more likely to get in an accident with that. So you want to say, what is the end state? How does the customer benefit? How do you win that game? And then what are the actions that you need to take? And be careful you don't breach the trust of the public. Make sure you tell them what information you're accessing and make sure you're not pushing people out of the market. It's still free enterprise here. Capitalism, free enterprise, everything else. They need to do that. But if your offering is better and you've been more shrewd, then to me, you have the right to go do what you need to do. Makes sense. So changing the topic a little bit, you had the opportunity to work for the Obama administration. Yeah. I know the administration is a little bit different now, but if you had to pass a law and technology, what would it be right now? A free and open internet. And free and open internet on two dimensions. One is a political one and the other one is an economic one. So let me start with the economic one. Obviously, we're veering a little bit into politics here, but I personally am a big believer in net neutrality. If you have a risk, talking about kind of behavior and cornering markets and all that, if you have a risk that people that run networks, and this is people that where I came from, telcos in essence, if they have the right to limit traffic and do what's called paid prioritization, um, you got an issue on your hands because then people that want to conduct 
transactions and connect with people socially and all that have the risk that somebody can, could throttle you, could limit the activity, could charge you more, etc. We need to make sure that that doesn't happen. Now, I think the telcos are much more in a space now saying they don't want to throttle traffic. But we just need to make sure that things are codified, that you don't have that risk of that in the future that, uh, that happens. By the way, the people that hurt most, um, if you don't have net neutrality, small businesses, internet companies, um, nonprofits, universities that don't have the resources necessary to pay to have traffic delivered. So that, to me, we need to protect. The second area, and this gets even more political in nature, is we've got to protect people's ability with free speech on the internet. Now, unfortunately, the world, since I was in the Obama administration, candidly, is not becoming more and more free and open to the internet. There's, it's becoming more clear, and there's just an article in the New York Times about two different internets that have emerged. One is a free one that's primarily led by the U.S., supported by Europe, supported by parts of Asia, parts of Latin America. And then you have an Internet that's not free, that is um, primarily uh, advanced by China, by Russia, by some of the Arab states. And by the way, there are a lot of countries, including India, that will shut down the Internet. We've got to be careful as Americans that we're not preaching to others. There's a variety of issues there. But what I learned in my time in the State Department is be careful of the unintended consequences. Be careful of the slippery slope downward. And once you start saying, you know what, you've got a judgment about what, what can go over the Internet or not, where does that end? Um, this treaty that I was involved in negotiating, we, we negotiated out almost all the problematic areas, but there were one or two that were left that became the basis for us not signing the treaty. One was spam, and I'm giving you as an example about how people interpret spam. In the US, when we say we don't want spam, it's generally commercial stuff, right? But spam can be political dissent in another place. So you don't want to sanction a government for making a judgment that you're saying something they don't want to hear. We want free and open uh, uh, environments. And hopefully, as time progresses, the long game, um, the internet will advance economies. It'll make people more affluent. It'll make societies more affluent. We've seen that. Yeah, and that should create more stability in, in governments and economies. That's the long-term wish. So that, that, to me, would be my hope long, long-term. Are you going to go back into politics? Should we, should we expect <laughs> yeah. a ticket 2020 at yeah. Terry Kramer 2020? Yeah, well, I, I love that. Uh, um, you know, yeah, public service, especially appointed politics or elected politics, is not something you plan on. It's not like saying, I want to be the CEO of Ford, I want to be the CEO of Google or whatever else. It's a bit of happenstance. I happen to be in the right time, the right place. When I left Vodafone... I knew Tom Wheeler. Tom Wheeler later became the FCC chair in the Obama administration. He was on the Mobile Industry Association board where I sat on the board. And he asked me when I left Vodafone, what do you want to do? And I said, either I want to teach and or I want to go into public service. So when this uh, ambassador role came up, he called me and said, if you, know, if you don't mind going through five months of background checks and, and selling all your tech holdings, you'll love the job. So it was one of, it, it was one of the most interesting high-impact roles I think I've ever had out of 20 years of corporate, which I loved. But just the short-term role I had in the Obama administration was like, oh my God, this is really feels great. So I would go back into public service if the context were right. But to say, you know, I, I'm planning on doing it right here and now would be hard to say. If you do want to commit, please come back to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will. Uh, I guess the, the, the two last questions I have is, you travel every week from LA to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. 
that's quite a lot of travel and it's got to be hard on yourself, on your family. Mm -hmm. So what brings you to UCLA? What, what kind of changes do you want to see at Anderson, especially now that yep. you're leading Easton? Yeah. So first of all, um, teaching to me has been one of the highest satisfaction roles. And the benefit of teaching, unlike the corporate world and even more so public service, those roles, when you keep moving up, you get a lot of people criticizing you and you got to have, you know, Arun used to say, you know, Terry, you know, you got good broad shoulders, meaning you got to kind of withstand some of the criticism and not lose sight of the end goal. But it's tough. It is. These aren't easy roles. Teaching in general, you don't get a lot of lateral criticism. You got to make sure the students are happy and that's your customer there. But you don't have a lot of other people that are lobbing in their you know, two cents worth on stuff. So it's a high satisfaction role from the lack of negative stuff. It's a high satisfaction role from the, the relationship with students. And seeing students get better and better and grow in their leadership. It sounds trite. It is the biggest thrill you'll have. And it's the biggest sense of giving back. It's the biggest sense of you're having a mark on future leaders and how they lead responsibly. So teaching is great. And then the geographic one, the San Francisco, Los Angeles. So two aspects. I went to UCLA undergrad. So every time I walk on campus, there's something sentimental. It's good memories. Yeah, it's great memories. I grew up a lot. This is an institution that started me on my own path. And I'm, you know, the school here has been great to me. I teach what I want and when I want it. I got great students like you that are there and that makes me committed. If I were at a different institution, they're all great, but there's going to be a little more micromanagement of what I do and how I do it and all that. And this is, this is just the, be the best combo you can have. Awesome. Uh, last question I have for you. One of the things that I've noticed is you're extremely well-read. Mm -hmm. Every day you spend a lot of time from what I remember in class reading. What is on your list of good reads? Yeah, great question. I'll give you that again, the macro and then get to the micro. Always be somebody that is well-read and studies and learns. And don't allow what happens in many people in their careers. They get dismissive, right? They start saying, I've seen this. I've been there, done that. They use all these expressions that kind of imply they know everything. And they actually date themselves in their leadership career. Don't let that happen. Always be a little bit paranoid, a little bit neurotic about what's going on around you. The best leaders are like that. And a big part of that is reading. Know what people are doing and what's working and what's not working, etc. So first of all, in reading, just on day-to-day -day stuff, The Economist, because you want to be a student of the world, politically and economically. It's the most macro piece. The Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Know what's going on in industry, across multiple industries, Ask yourself the so what. Is there a common theme about where funding is happening? Is there a common theme about where innovation is happening, et cetera, et cetera? And then get down to specific stuff like TechCrunch and know what cool innovation is happening. So those are kind of the day-to-day -day things that, that, that I read. And then I love to step back and do macro. Harari um, wrote a couple of books that I found were just fascinating. Sapiens, which is the story of humankind. And what's happened over a period of time and what's the motivation of human beings and society and advancement. And then wrote a, a sequel to it called Homo Deus, which is a look at where is technology going to bring us in the future. It's a bit alarming book. I don't want to give, you, give away what all happens, but it makes you think about how do we manage the use of technology and what, how will our lives evolve in the future when maybe there's less work, when there's maybe more tasks are done in an automated way, what is our sense of uh, being a human being? It's a really, really interesting read. It's dense. 
and the guy is a rocket scientist. So sometimes I got to go back and read a page over again, to understand what the hell he was talking about. But it's, it's something that you really learn a lot on. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much for taking the opportunity flying from LA or San Francisco to LA to speak with us. Really appreciate it. For those of you who haven't taken Professor Kramer's class, I highly encourage you to either take technology management, which is offered in winter, or global mobile, which is what I took and it's offered in spring. Thank you again. Excellent. Thorough pleasure. Thank you, Parth. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions for future guests, shoot us an email at andrewcastla at gmail.com.